You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Informing America's farmers and ranchers, this is AOA, produced by the American Ag Radio Network. Now, here's your host, Mike Pearson. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Thanks for listening to AOA. Today, we've got a fun show coming because today is the first Wednesday in the month of June, which means the second segment of the show will be the monthly grind with our friends from the National Corn Growers Association. In segment three, we're going to check in with Arlen Suderman. On Friday, we get the release of this month's World Agricultural Supply and Demand Estimates. No doubt Arlen is calculating his balance sheets. We'll get his update on what he's looking to expect here later on in the show. And then we're going to close with Matt Herrick, Senior Vice President at the International Dairy Food Association, about a new bill that's been introduced in the House of Representatives to get kids whole milk in schools. That's a winner in my mind. We'll talk with Matt here at the end of the program. Before we get into all of that, however, we're turn our focus to the cattle industry. Cattle markets continuing to rock and roll here on this Wednesday. June live cattle in delivery up $1.77. August live cattle up $1.30 trading right now at $1.7680. But we might have some more competition coming to meat cases according to the USDA's APHIS. Joining us now to talk about this is Kent Backus. He's the executive director at the NCBA of Government Affairs. And Kent, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me, and I, I got to apologize for the background noise. We have our Young Cattlemen's Conference here in Washington this week. We are on the Hill this morning. Uh, NCBA, you know, we advocate uh, in person, not from behind a desk. So we are boots on the ground here in D.C. So I apologize for the road noise. But uh, that is as you just were saying, fine, Kent. Yeah, yeah no. But as as you were saying. You know, we may have a little bit uh, more competition coming from Paraguay, and that is something that NCBA uh, is definitely engaging on, uh, not in support, uh, but raising concerns about the overall process and about potential risk to the U.S. herd. And Kent, that's where I think we need to pick up this discussion. This has been a process in progress for a while. USDA APHIS has been making these moves to greenlight fresh Paraguayan beef into the United States. Paraguay, of course, not a foot-and-mouth disease-free country. Kent, what are the risks here to U.S. cattlemen if this moves forward? So I think you have to look at the fact that you know Paraguay has been going through this application process for 18 years. One of the reasons why it's taken so long for them to do this is because they do have FMD cases. The latest case they had was in 2012. They have a vaccination program that, you know, that they've tried to put forward to help, you know, uh, mitigate some of those risks. But, you know, the problem is, is that uh, we don't think that, uh, you know, that that they can provide a true equivalent level of safety. You know, when you look at USDA's potential justifications for allowing them, uh, first and foremost, Paraguay has to show that they provide an equivalent level of safety of what we have here which means it would not put our risk, our herd at risk. But the decisions that were made uh, from USDA and what has been proposed are based off of old site visits. We're talking about site visits in Paraguay in 2008 and 2014. And so, you know, that's a a bit concerning, plus the fact that there's actually no official reports from those site visits. So we have nothing to really review as far as the data or analysis or even look at the audits themselves. So, you know, I think that that's a big, that's a big concern is that this decision is being made off of, you know, old data. 
So we want USDA to go back down there, interview this. A lot has happened in the last five years, even more so uh, over the last 10. So I think, I, I think that's going to be an important uh, point that has to be addressed. I, it certainly sounds like that's the case. Kent, with, with the USDA moving forward on this, and I believe the process kind of got in earnest back in March, it's been accelerating since. Do we have a timeline for when fresh beef from Paraguay could come into this country? Well, keep in mind that, you know, even though they've posted the final rule, they have to review all the comments that have been submitted. So they're going to have to answer questions that we've raised. And rest assured, a lot of our allies in Congress are also going to be raising those questions and concerns. Uh, so, you know, I think it, I think it, it's going to take a bit of, bit of time to do this. But keep in mind, you know, the U.S. is also trying to launch a, a trade and investment framework, uh, which is basically a light footprint free trade agreement with Paraguay. The only request from Paraguay is beef access. So politically, there are people who want us to have closer ties in South America. We don't want to be trade bait. We do not want to put our herd at risk. Uh, we think that if there's a scientific justification, then that's a different conversation. But from what we've seen in the data, we have a lot of concerns because it's not just about old site visits. Paraguay relies, uh, 85% of the, the funding for their FMD mitigation systems come from the private sector. And USDA did not consider the economic impact of both COVID and La Nina in Paraguay over the last few years. So I think those are important things that need to be reviewed. We need, a, we need an honest assessment, a realistic assessment of what Paraguay is like today, not what it was like a decade ago. Absolutely. 15-year-old data does not make a good decision. Kent, you mentioned the allies in Congress that the cattle industry has taking a look at this. What would be the congressional approach to try and, and mitigate this issue? Well, you know, I think, you know, Congress is looking closely at, you know, investing in, in building our own FMD safety, uh, you know, safeguards here. So we're not only trying to build a vaccine bank, we're trying to also have, uh, you know, uh, preparedness plans and diagnostic equipment and everything else that's there. So I think there's a lot of skepticism in Congress of, of what what's really to gain here. And so I think that with congressional oversight, there may be some opportunities uh, to postpone this until more accurate information is available. We are definitely going to explore every option available. Uh, but I think there's a lot of folks that are concerned that we could potentially be putting our herd at risk without, you know, updated information. So why would we do that when we're also going to spend millions of dollars in F&B preparedness domestically? This seems like a seems like a common sense approach, but therein lies the problem because in Washington, common sense is a is a you know scarce commodity sometimes. So that's why yeah, we're, here. That's we're, we're getting a little here. short there in the capital sometimes of common sense. Again, Kent, while we're thinking about this, you mentioned the vaccine bank. Of course, we've got that bipartisan legislation, the Foreign Animal Disease Prevention, Surveillance, and Rapid Response Act. I've got to imagine that ties in with this issue, doesn't it? Absolutely. And I think the fact that there's bipartisan support for legislation like that, for you know, having proper investment in defending our herd from foreign animal disease, I mean, that's, uh, that, that builds into everything, not just animal health, but food security. We have to protect our domestic herd. We have to do it scientifically. Uh, and we think that, you know, there is a right way to do this. When it comes back to Paraguay, they got a lot of work to do. I think, you know, the, the science has to be updated. We have to have more recent assessments. Otherwise, we're taking a great risk. 
And that is the last thing this beef herd in the United States needs today. We're already at one of the tightest beef supplies in a long time, folks. Keep aware of these issues. Stay in contact and watch the news. We'll be watching for updates on this. Kent, in the meantime, should folks be doing anything else to prepare for Paraguayan beef? Yeah, you know, I think uh, I think this is an important thing for you to raise for members of Congress. Of why are we working on Paraguay when we haven't settled Brazil? We still have a lot of issues with Brazilian imports. I think before we get to Paraguay, we first have to correct things with Brazil. That's right. One thing at a time. Folks, we've been talking with Kent Backus, the Executive Director of Government Affairs for the National Cattlemen's Beef Association. Kent, thanks for joining us today. Thank you. Folks, stay with us. We'll have the monthly grind from NCGA when we return. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. Welcome to the 2023 Corn Sprint. Please be silent as the runners take their marks. And looks like one plant has already pulled into an early lead because it's been enhanced with Biopath, a biological fertilizer complement from the Mosaic Company. Wait, wait, and the early favorite has crossed the finish line. Get the most out of your fertilizer investment. Don't forget to add Biopath to your early season application. Talk to your retailer about Mosaic Biologicals today or visit cornsprint.com. Non-attorney paid spokesperson. Could your house go into foreclosure? Are you behind on your mortgage payments? Does it seem like the bank has no interest in helping you save your home and you feel like you have nowhere to turn for help? Then we have good news for you. Foreclosure Protection Services can help save your home as they specialize in foreclosure assistance. That's all they do. If you're behind on your mortgage payments, being threatened with foreclosure, have been denied a loan modification, or been the victim of a predatory loan, it's critical that you call Foreclosure Protection Services now at 800-926-1701. Their network of attorneys and their agents are available to speak to you now. If you're behind on your mortgage payments, Foreclosure Protection Services can help stop the foreclosure process. Call today before it's too late. New laws are in effect and may save your home. Call Foreclosure Protection Services now at 800-926-1701. 800-926-1701. That's 800-926-1701. Young farmers don't listen to the radio, right? Wrong. In a recent survey, 74% of young producers said they get their most important agricultural information from their trusted farm radio station. Surprised? Don't be. If you think about it, it makes perfect sense. Radio is the perfect companion because it goes with you everywhere. Whether you're in the shop, on the combine, or in the truck, Farm Radio is right there with you. This message brought to you by the National Association of Farm Broadcasting. Nothing offers an opportunity to bond and give thanks quite like breaking bread together. This is especially true as we welcome our troops back home and keep those who are still stationed overseas in our hearts. Hi, I'm Gary Sinise. Since 2011, the Gary Sinise Foundation's Serving Heroes program has shown gratitude to our nation's defenders and their families by serving up nearly 500,000 hearty classic American meals at travel hubs and military locations. And now, together with our friends at Bob Evans Farms and their Our Farm Salutes program, we will help to provide even more meals nationwide, offering our defenders a taste of home and a feeling of togetherness around the table. Help us show America's gratitude through food and fellowship. Look for the Bob Evans Our Farm Salutes purple packaging at your grocery store and visit ourfarmsalutes.com to learn more. While we can never do enough to support the men and women who serve, together we can make a difference. 
bite by bite. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to AOA. We're excited to have you joining us, especially because today is the first Wednesday of the month of June, which means today is the monthly grind. This is our segment each month with our friends from the National Corn Growers Association, where we look at how that group is working to drive corn demand higher around the world. This week, we're talking about that intersection between meat exports and corn demand. Joining us to talk through these issues, we've got Wendy Osborne. She serves as the Director for Market Development with Ohio Corn and Wheat. Wendy, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, it's great to be on. And we also have Ralph Lentz, Iowa farmer, serves on the Executive Committee as the on the Board of Directors for the U.S. Meat Export Federation. And Ralph, thank you for joining us here today. Glad to be with you, Mike. Thank you. Let's talk about the USMEF first. Ralph, I'm going to throw this question to you. What is the U.S. Meat Export Federation for listeners who've maybe not gotten familiar with you guys? Well, it stands for United States Meat Export Federation, and they help in opening up markets to export our meat around the world. And Ralph, as I understand it, you guys do that by engaging with folks around the world. It's a very person-to-person kind of interaction. Can you tell us a little bit about the most recent get-together up there in Minneapolis here at the end of May? We, uh, we, we met up there in Minneapolis. We got feedback from, from our different countries where we do business. We're in 80 different countries around the world uh, doing exporting business. But uh, exporting looks really good right now. Everybody likes our product, and uh, we're having some pretty good results with our exports right now. Ralph, when we say some pretty good results with our exports, can you give us a little more detail? How was 2022 from a meat export perspective? It was a pretty good year, wasn't it? Yes, it was. Uh, beef kind of set an all-time high. Beef exports, pork was down just a little bit, but uh, that was due to China being shut down, those Asian countries not being open because of COVID. They didn't uh, import as much meat, but uh, this year everything's opening up and it looks really good. Everything's opening up. It looks really good. We're seeing more of that U.S. corn-fed meat moving overseas to optimistic buyers hungry for our quality. And Wendy, what does this mean for corn growers at the end of the day? Yeah, so corn growers recognize that 95% of the world's population lives outside the U.S. So trade is just so important to the U.S. farm farmer. And American corn farmers want to help increase demand for U.S beef and pork around the world and because they're a large consumer of our corn. And so the U.S. MEF just updated its export numbers for 2022 and illustrated that the value of the corn uh, to, to corn and soybean farmers. The show, study shows that in 2021, beef and pork exports, this is just the exports, Mike, they accounted for 537 million bushels of corn usage, which equates to about $2.94 billion to the American corn farmer. That is incredible. Folks, just to put that figure into some perspective, just the amount of corn that we feed animals who we sell overseas, almost 600 million bushels, that is huge. And 
we want to keep it going, right? That is, at the end of the day, the goal of the Market Development Action Team. That's the goal of USMEF. Ralph, as you look out over the summer from USMEF's perspective, we've got this intersection of corn and export issues happening with Mexico. What's USMEF thinking about as, as you look at that topic going ahead with their concerns on GMO corn? Well, we've had meetings with Mexico uh, with concerns about the GMO corn. We're worried about it. Uh, it's all right for us to uh, export meat that is fed GMO corn, and they're they're good with that. And they're going to feed GMO corn to their own livestock. It's just their own uh, uh, food grade consumption. They're having trouble with the GMO. But uh, we are staying in close contact with Mexico because they are one of our largest meat exporters. They certainly are. They're a huge meat exporter. They are a huge grain buyer from the U.S. And all of those things definitely matter. Wendy, as you think about how we navigate these challenges as corn, as livestock producers, where do partnerships between the Market Development Action Team for NCGA and the USMEF make sense? How do you guys add value to this uh, partnership? Yeah, so the National Corn Growers Association and the U.S. Meat Export Federation have been longtime partners. Again, we've understood the value of that relationship. Um, during the May National Corn Growers Association uh, Market Development Action Team meeting, uh, the team approved allocating funds to assist hosting the upcoming USMEF Global Processing Seminar in Lincoln, Nebraska during July 25th through 27th. Uh, this is a great educational event where food companies from around the world will come into the U.S. and learn about U.S. beef and pork. Um, this event uh, will be the third iteration of NCGA's co-sponsored U.S. MEF. And so um, also last year we approved funding to help develop virtual reality goggles to help uh, show American agriculture to export buyers overseas during the trade show events. So just a little glimpse of just a few things that we're doing uh, to help support the USMEF and our U.S. beef and pork uh, farmers. And Wendy, it's so fantastic to find that partnership works well in bringing those foreign buyers over. Ralph, I know when we mentioned this before from USMEF's perspective, it makes such a big difference when you bring those meat buyers over to the United States to see how American livestock production works. And I'm wondering, now that COVID's in the rearview mirror, does MEF have more plans to bring more foreign buyers back into this country? Oh, yes. Uh, those buyers are, are really wanting to get over here and take a look at, at what we're doing over here. And they really appreciate farm visits. They love to go out and see producers and how things work on their farms. And, and that way they can relate it back to their meat and everything. They love to see family operations. That makes a lot of sense. Of course, I love seeing family operations if I'm learning about new aspects in agriculture. And Ralph, I'm curious if these folks are coming from different countries and they're learning about American ag and livestock production, what stands out? I mean, what's a what's a value add for American ag in these buyers' eyes? Uh, well, they're looking at sustainability now. Uh, you know, they want everything a little more carbon-free and everything. Uh, Everybody's becoming more and more environmental uh, conscious, and they're wanting to see how we, what we're doing to to help aid this environmental situation. Yes, the environment is always top of mind for buyers nowadays. And Wendy, you are, of course, market development director for the Ohio Corn and Wheat. And Ohio is a livestock powerhouse. That is certainly true. Can you talk about how corn demand in Ohio has been growing with regard to uh, to meat consumption? Yeah. So again, we've seen meat consumption uh, increase 
uh, in the U.S. But again, there's just so much opportunity as meat consumption um, expands across the world. As you know, we have growing populations. We have uh, areas. There's emerging markets uh, in Asia where more people are moving to urban areas, and they just have a rising middle class that has the demand um, for meat. And you know, in the U.S., we just produce a really high quality meat product. Um, and so there's such a desire for U.S. grain-fed beef and U.S. pork around the world. There certainly is. And Ralph, as you look out from USMEF's perspective, you mentioned we saw strong demand growth come back in Southeast Asia. As you folks look ahead to 2023, barbecue summertime is in front of us. What global regions look like hotspot for U.S. beef and pork exports? Uh, anything in Asia, Korea, Japan, uh, China, they, they all love our corn-fed beef. That's not duplicated anywhere in the world. And the pork products are moving well. Again, it's, it's Asia. It's the driver behind this. They've got a taste of our red meat, and they don't like fish anymore. They're moving more than red meats. Man, and Ralph, does it sound like that is a permanent shift, or is that a COVID change that they could be going back to fish? Uh, no, they, they are... As they earn more money, have a better standard of living, they want to buy red meat. They're tired of eating fish. Well, I guess I know how that goes. I certainly love throwing a good piece of red meat on the grill. That is for sure. Wendy, as we've got folks thinking about this growing season coming up, thinking about driving more demand for corn, what areas are you optimistic about? Yeah, again, I think exports uh, just in general, but again, the U.S. beef and pork exports are certainly, um, you know, a significant, I think, going to be a portion of our opportunity as we just look around the world. And, you know, just talking back on the opportunity, uh, you know, in Southeast Asia, specifically even in China, um, there's just a really rebounding um, food service as they're coming out of COVID, uh, eating more in restaurants. And so we've seen a really increase in tourism and that food service. And so that's just creating even more demand for our products. And that is something we like to see, and it is something worth celebrating. And folks, it doesn't happen without teamwork. Our thanks to Wendy Osborne of the Ohio Corn and Wheat and Ralph Lentz of the U.S. Meat Export Federation for talking about that partnership that allows more U.S. meat to be sold, which puts more dollars in U.S. corn farmers' pockets. Both of you, thank you so much for joining us on AOA today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Folks, stay tuned. When AOA returns, we'll be talking with Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist at StoneX, but you can learn more about the Market Development Action Team at ncga.com. Thanks for listening to The Monthly Grind. Stay tuned for more AOA. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. Don't go away. More AOA coming right up. In today's troubled world, our USA Armed Forces stand ready to protect you, your family, and our American way of life. When veterans return to civilian life, they deserve your recognition and support. You can help put vets to work by donating your car, truck, or van to Patriotic Hearts. Your donation will directly support programs to help vets find jobs or even start their own business. Donate today for fast, free pickup of your vehicle, running or not. Operators are standing by to answer questions about making a tax-deductible vehicle donation. Find out how you can make a difference in the life of a United States veteran. 
Call 800-209-6416 for 24-hour response. Call 800-209-6416. 800-209-6416. That's 800-209-6416. You're listening to AOA for the American Egg Network. I'm Richard Risvet with this market update. The grains are mixed to mostly lower this hour, led by Kansas City wheat. Soybeans are showing a bit of strength this morning. And with planting of corn and beans almost finished, the focus now is shifting to weather conditions. Some rain fell in parts of the central U.S. from South Dakota into Texas and from Minnesota south into the Louisiana Gulf Coast in the past 24 hours. Still, though, little or no rain has fallen the past week for a large chunk of land stretching from eastern South Dakota east to the Atlantic seaboard and south into Alabama and Georgia. About 62% of the U.S. beans were in good to excellent condition at the start of the week. 64% of the corn crop was in good or excellent condition at the start of the week. That's down from 69% a week earlier. Trade expectations were for 67%. And U.S. spring wheat was 64% good or excellent. Also the first reading of the year for the crop missing projections for 66%. And in USDA's WASDE report on Friday, it will likely raise ending stocks for corn, beans, and wheat. Corn stockpiles are projected to rise to 1.449 billion bushels, while soybean inventories likely will be pegged at 223 million bushels. That's up from the May outlook for 215 million, and wheat stocks are seeing at 606 million bushels versus the 598 million previously thought. And forecast for 23-24 looks at corn inventories to rise a bit, as well as soybeans. However, wheat stockpiles projected RCN being lowered for 23-24. The VIX is trading near 14 this morning. That's after dipping briefly below it yesterday for the first time in three years. Yields on 10-year treasuries are trading near 3.71%, while yields on two-year treasuries are trading near 4.54%. While the Dow is hovering around unchanged, the dollar is losing a bit of strength and crude oil is trading up about 1.5% currently. You're listening to AOA for the American Ag Network. I'm Richard Ristvet. Take a look under your bed. Find stuff under there? What about jobs? No? Now try your basement. There's a pair of overalls that overall you're not so into anymore. A perfectly good laptop that hasn't sat in your lap in months. And even more stuff, but still no jobs? Well, you really have both. See, stuff is defined as household articles considered as a group. Sometimes this stuff is no longer needed. Wait, no longer needed? That can't be right. Because remember those jobs you were looking for? Those are really needed, and they're the stuff inside your stuff. Even inside that winter coat that moved with you to Phoenix. Our job is to unlock those jobs, and it starts when you donate your stuff to your local Goodwill. Here's how we do it. When you donate to Goodwill, we sell your stuff to provide job training for people right here in your community. So just by teaming up with Goodwill, you help create jobs. And isn't that worth parting with the leftover keytar from your 80s cover band? Goodwill. Donate stuff, create jobs. Find your nearest donation center at goodwill.org. A message from Goodwill and the Ad Council. You're listening to AOA, Agriculture of America. This is Mike Pearson, and you can rely on us for the latest farm and ranch news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. AOA continues today, and of course, this week in June at the on Friday at eleven o'clock Central Time, we'll receive the USDA's World Agricultural Supply and Demand Estimates for the month of June. And 
this might be an interesting one. Joining us now for a look at the markets as well as a look ahead to what to expect on Friday, we're talking with Arlen Suderman, Chief Commodities Economist with StoneX. And Arlen, thank you so much for joining us here today. Good to be back with you, Mike. You know, before we get to what's ahead here with WASD, we've got a couple of days of market action in hot and dry weather ahead of us. Arlen, what are your expectations here for this corn market over the next day or two? I think it's probably going to go a whole lot of nowhere. It's going. We're going to see some chopping back and forth. We're going to see some rallies come in. Those rallies are then going to be sold, and I think we're probably going to end up sideways. Uh, the market is concerned about the dryness across the Midwest, but it sees a lot of rain coming in for um, most areas of the Midwest. I am a little bit concerned that uh looks like now the pivot in the pattern is coming as expected, but maybe a little bit further south and east than what we anticipated. That's going to leave the northwestern 30% of the belt or so at a greater risk of seeing some losses that could drag down the national crop. So that's a concern that I have, and I think the trade's going to be watching that closely. Uh, it's still going to be restrained from getting too aggressive, though, by concerns that, A, USDA may be overstating demand for both old crop and new crop corn and uh, maybe even for soybeans as well and it wants to see USDA's report on Friday to see whether that's confirmed or not um, before getting too enthusiastic but uh, ultimately this is a weather market and they don't trade in a weather market they don't trade how dry it is today they trade how dry the forecasts are or how wet the forecasts are in the in the two-week outlook so that's primarily what the market's looking at right now Arlen, a couple of times there, you mentioned the trade is watching for these these USDA reports on Friday. One of the things I've heard coming from folks, although there's curious to get your insight, a yield adjustment. It's June. Arlen, do we think USDA is going to make a, an adjustment to trend yield? Now, I, I think they'll stick with their yields that they used in, in the February Ag Outlook form, which they used in May. Uh, I think they'll stick with that for this report as well. They really don't like to mess with their yields until they get to August. Um, sometimes they'll do it if the weather is at an extreme level. And I know a lot of farmers are saying, well, it is. It justifies a cut in yield. And from that standpoint, I wouldn't be surprised if they reduce the yield. I just don't expect it out of USDA at this point. Okay. Well, that makes some sense, Arlen. I'm curious, you mentioned demand might be overstated here in both old and new crop corn. Are you watching for the demand to be overstated in exports? Is it ethanol? Where do you think that uh, overabundance lays? Uh, both of those categories right now, frankly. If you look at exports, uh, my export estimate for the current marketing year is $60 million below USDA. I think we'll have another few weeks of some solid shipments. And then as the cheaper Brazilian supplies start to hit the world market, I think we're going to see our, our exports drop off considerably, and that's going to make it tough to close the gap that we have from where we need to be to hit USDA's target. When you look at ethanol uh, usage, um, I was just running the numbers, some latest numbers that came out today, and we're trailing by about 45 million bushels, the seasonal pace we need to be on to hit USDA's target for the year. If you look at estimated corn use for ethanol year to date through May, um, we need to average about 460, 465 million bushels of corn per month going forward through the summer to hit USDA's target for production of ethanol. 
and we've only been averaging around 417 million bushels over the last three months. So we're really going to have to pick up the pace or, or that number will come down as well. Then as we look at next year, the 23-24 marketing year that starts on September 1, first of all, with those lower demand numbers for old crop that I gave, that means a higher ending stocks number we carry into next year. So we start off with a higher number to start with. And then you look at feed usage from USDA. They went up 7.1% on feed usage for a year in which beef production is expected to be down 8% and pork production is expected to be flat. Now, I know they always figure a bigger crop means more residual use, but what is residual use? It's just kind of the, the fudge factor of the market, whether they overestimated or underestimated the market, or the, excuse me, the size of the crop. Um, so it, it's hard to justify the higher feed usage. And yes, bigger crops tend to give cheaper prices, which tends to put cattle in the feedlot maybe a little bit sooner. Um, but at the same time, with the change in the weather pattern we got in the southwestern plains, that's going to produce more forage, which may keep cattle out of the feedlots, uh, even though corn prices are cheaper. So I'm just not ready to make that assumption on the much bigger feed usage for the coming year. Uh, and on exports, when I look at my world balance sheet going country by country, and I look at the big rapid increase in corn production in Brazil uh, and coming out of El Nino, which means we should, excuse me, coming out of La Nina into El Nino, which means we should have some big crops in Argentina next year as well. Um, I think USDA is overstating next year's corn exports by at least 300 million bushels. So you put it all together, and my ending stocks estimate for the 23-24 marketing year is 2.7 billion. Now, I, I do think that that'll start. I'm going to start trailing back, eroding back my production estimate if we stay on the drier side in the northwestern third of the belt. Um, so that'll start cutting into supply, but we can cut into supply quite a bit with that kind of the demand loss. And, and while this isn't what people want to hear out there, I'd be remiss if I wasn't honest about what I expect. That makes sense, Arlen. And if I'm, my memory serves me correctly, that almost 3 billion bushel carryout figure, that's what the market was anticipating at the start of 2020, wasn't it? Yeah, it or really was. And then demand really exceeded expectations, and, and production wasn't quite there as well. So a couple of factors really trimmed that down. We saw China come in and make a lot of purchases that uh, utilized a lot of that corn, and I'm not expecting that in the year ahead. All right, things to watch for there. Arlen, while we're talking grains, I'd like to bring the focus down to the wheat market. We saw that incredible price spike on the news of the dam bombing over in Ukraine. But since the market has caught wind of that, we have been selling off pretty aggressively. What's happening here in the wheat trade? Well, I think the trade is realizing that uh, while it will affect some production areas, and yeah, that is a wheat production area that is affected, but in, and it, it's really taking a water supply from about a thousand miles of irrigation channels that supply irrigation to a, a good deal of the area. Um, but one of the reasons they have a problem is because they've been seeing so much rain over the area. So lack of water for crops really hasn't been an area. Uh, 
hasn't been a problem. Uh, I think the greater risk right now is the geopolitical tensions, is, is the tensions between the West and Russia and China continue to mount the war intensifying. Uh, I think that's probably the greater threat, but the market's largely discounting that at this point. Um, and so Russia keeps dumping cheap wheat on the world market. As long as Russia is dumping cheap wheat on the market, it's really difficult for the wheat market to sustain any type of rally. Yes, it certainly makes sense. Arlen, I, before we let you go here, we've got this cattle market continuing in record territory here. June in delivery at 181 right here. What does your crystal ball show here with a market in record territory? Arlen, what are you anticipating with this beef trade? Well, the job of the marketplace, we're not going to have enough beef in order to meet demand. So the job of the marketplace is to find a price that will ration that demand to bring supply and demand into balance. So we started that process. We started that process earlier than what we anticipated as supplies tightened up faster than what we anticipated. Some of that was weather-related over the winter. Um, But... uh, Right now, we're looking at uh, this declining supply of cattle to continue, and once we really start to rebuild the cattle herd, that's going to pull even more uh, heifers out of the supply and tighten it up even further. Uh, We're starting to see that rationing on the export side for beef right now. The export's really dropping off, starting to see a little bit of softening of domestic demand, but domestic demand has really held better than what was anticipated to this point, and so that's why we're seeing these cash prices for cattle just continue to surge, looking like it's going to be even a little bit higher this week than last week's record prices. But so much of that demand resting on domestic consumption. Arlen, are you getting concerned about oil prices or the broader economy as we head into the summer? Oh, I am concerned about the economy. I think it's been continuing to be resilient. Uh, And as we look at oil prices, uh, we continue to kind of hold in a sideways pattern in here. Expectations that OPEC Plus is going to cut supplies um, is is supportive. But at the same time, global demand, particularly in China, has really disappointed. They did pick up imports last month, but overall, this is a market that seems to be in a place of balance right now in the, in the energy side of things. If we see the economy pick up, energy prices we'd expect to pick up. Um, but longer term, going back to the cattle, it's really going to come down to what the consumer can afford to pay. And with inflation still a major factor, I, that is a concern going Going forward, and of course, that's part of the market's job. Indeed, it is trying to sort out all of these different factors and still get beef home to consumers. Folks, we have been talking today with Arlen Suderman. He's the chief commodities economist over at StoneX. He joins us with an update on these markets frequently, and we always appreciate your insight. Arlen, thank you so much for joining us on AOA today. Thank you. And folks, stick with us. We're going to turn our topics to dairy demand when AOA returns. A new bill in the House of Representatives, whole milk for healthy kids getting proper nutrition into schools. We're going to talk with Matt Herrick of the International Dairy Food Association when we return. Hi, this is Mike Pearson. You're listening to AOA agriculture of america don't go away more aoa coming right up what do mick jagger barbara walters and star jones all have in common they've all suffered from something called heart valve disease 
Heart valve disease affects 11 million Americans and if left untreated can lead to death. Unfortunately, less than one in four Americans have much knowledge of this disease that kills more than 25,000 people every year. The good news is that if heart valve disease is treated, patients can recover and live long, happy, and productive lives. But in order to treat heart valve disease, you need to know if you have it. If you or your loved ones are over the age of 65, have been treated with radiation to the chest, have been diagnosed with a heart murmur, or have a history of heart disease, it's time to listen to your heart. Ask your doctor today about screening for heart valve disease. A message brought to you by Heart Valve Voice US. For more information about the symptoms and treatment for valve disease, go to heartvalvevoice-us.org. 54. So, basically, it's too late to start saving for retirement, right? Not right. Starting to save, even in your 50s, can really make a difference. Well, right now, saving seems hard to wrap my head around. Plus, with the way this year's been going... <laughs> hey, listen. It's okay. You still got this. Just go to aceyourretirement.org. It's an online tool from AARP that can help you get your retirement savings on track no matter your age. It's free and only takes about three minutes. I like three minutes. Yeah. At aceyourretirement.org, you'll chat with Avo, the friendly digital retirement coach. Just answer a few questions and you'll get a personalized plan and tips to help boost your retirement savings. Tips that are easy to understand and tailored to your lifestyle. I like that too. Plus, it's sponsored by AARP, so you know they got your back. Just head to aceyourretirement.org and make your plan to start saving for retirement. Thanks. That's aceyourretirement.org. A message from AARP and the Ad Council. Welcome to the 2023 Corn Sprint. Please be silent as the runners take their marks. And looks like one plant has already pulled into an early lead because it's been enhanced with Biopath, a biological fertilizer complement from the Mosaic Company. Wait, wait, and the early favorite has crossed the finish line. Get the most out of your fertilizer investment. Don't forget to add Biopath to your early season application. Talk to your retailer about Mosaic Biologicals today or visit cornsprint.com. Join us every Tuesday for Around the Table, brought to you by CHS, as we discuss how cooperatives support farmers and ranchers and build strong communities. Each week, we'll chat with voices from across the cooperative system. From global market access to local expertise, we'll explore how co-op ownership means you own a world of opportunities. Tune in on Tuesdays or visit cooperativeownership.com to learn more. The average American eats 250 eggs per year, which translates to a total annual consumption of 76.5 billion eggs in the U.S. About 60% of eggs produced here in the U.S. are used by consumers and about 9% are used by the food service industry. A chef's hat is said to have a pleat for each of the many ways you can cook eggs. The color can range from white to deep brown. Hens with white feathers and earlobes lay white-shelled eggs, while hens with red feathers and earlobes lay brown-shelled eggs. Because breeds that lay brown eggs are typically slightly larger birds, they require more food, making brown eggs usually more expensive than white. You can tell whether an egg is fresh or stale by dropping it in water. A fresh egg will sink, but a stale one will float. Eggs also contain all the essential protein, minerals, and vitamins, and egg yolks are one of the few foods that naturally contain vitamin D. And eggs are also good for your eyes because they contain lutein, which helps prevent age-related cataracts and muscle degeneration. These farm facts brought to you by the American Ag Network. Put a frog in a pot of boiling water and it'll jump right out. But put a frog in a pot of cool water and slowly heat it up, that frog will boil. 
As a metaphor for us and all that we go through as veterans, it's a story that rings true. We learn to endure the heat in silence. We apply what we learn to life, the bills, the job, the family, things we're expected to handle with ease. When life heats up around us, we just try to stay afloat. We let the water boil. Reaching out isn't easy, but you've never been interested in easy. You join because you are not afraid of hard work. You are not a frog. If you or a veteran you know needs support, don't wait until the water boils. Reach out. Find resources at va.gov reach. That's va.gov reach. Brought to you by the United States Department of Veterans Affairs and the Ad Council. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. Keeping America's farmers and ranchers informed on AOA. Now back to Mike Pearson. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. For most school districts across the country, we are now in summer. Most kids aren't heading back to school each day. But the work at schools isn't done. Work in Washington, D.C. continues on what kids can eat and drink while they are at school. This is an area the USDA has spent a lot of time talking about here over the past year, and now we've got a piece of legislation that could also perhaps change what kids have access to in schools. Joining us for an update on all of these issues is Matt Herrick. He's a Senior Vice President of Public Affairs and Communications with the International Dairy Food Association. And Matt, thank you so much for joining us on AOA today. Hey, Mike, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be with you. You know, I'm thinking maybe we ought to start with the beginning about the conversation around flavored milks in schools. Matt, can you tell us a little bit about what USDA has proposed this year on flavored milks? Yeah, absolutely. And I can't believe we're having this conversation again. It seems to be go round and round on this stuff, right? So, you know, earlier this year, the department proposed some some rules around, uh, like you said, what kids can eat at school, what they can drink at school, these school nutrition standards. Uh, USDA made a few proposals around flavored milk in school. They they proposed uh, keeping it uh, as it is, which is 1% in nonfat milk uh, through in grades K through 12. And then they made two additional proposals. It could be removed in K through 5 entirely, uh, or it could be removed in K through 8 entirely. And if it is kept in schools, regardless uh, what grade it's in, they proposed reducing the level of added sugar in that flavored milk product to no more than 10 grams or more of added sugar. So there are a lot of things floating around out there that USDA has proposed. Um, but, you know, the thing that IDFA and the National Milk Producers and other dairy organizations are really, really pushing back against and trying to get attention for is removal of flavored milk in schools. That is the wrong, wrong way to go here. It's a misguided proposal by the department because, you know, if you've been in any lunchroom across the United States, this is what kids uh, prefer. So the majority of kids in school lunchrooms are taking that flavored milk, chocolate milk, strawberry milk, because they, they know that it's delicious, but it also has the same essential nutrients that white milk has. Right. And so I imagine if we pull flavored milk out, the kids might not be going to white milk. They might be switching to water, right? Or soda, Matt. Is that the concern? <laughs> oh, my gosh. Let's hope not. I mean, if they if we pull flavored milk out, the, the, the idea with, that the department has is that they'll go to, you know, they'll take uh, skim milk or 
or 1% milk. But in many cases, what the kids end up doing is not taking anything. Like you said, they end up, they end up drinking water. And so this has happened actually in places across the country, California, parts in the middle part of the country in the Northeast, where chocolate milk has been removed from the school and then participation in the school meals program plummets. And you see less kids drinking milk entirely and less kids participating in those meal programs, which is a terrible thing for kids in, in child nutrition, right? Because they miss out on all the nutrients that milk provides. They miss out on all the nutrients that the meal provides. They end up wasting more of their food, throwing it more in the trash, more of it in the trash. So, you know, it's wrongheaded. It's a bad idea really from top to bottom. And the other thing about this, Mike, is that the dairy industry, all the milk processors who sell milk to schools have already come together and said, listen, USDA, we're going to commit right now that we're going to, the flavored milk that we sell to schools is going to provide, is going to have no more than 10 grams of added sugar per eight ounce serving. So you have your proposal out there, USDA, but we're beating you to the punch. So we're going to get ahead of you. Uh, we're going to make sure that the products that we provide have no more than 10 grams of added sugar. And so we're already there. We're already there as an industry. We're already, on average, our products are 8.2 grams of added sugar. So I really don't know what this debate is all about, quite honestly. Um, and we're, we're trying to beat the, the department to, to the punch here with the idea that we want to maintain those products because this is what kids prefer and it's good for their overall health. Right. It sounds like it's a win-win for those youth that are taking that flavored milk. I know I lived on flavored chocolate milk when I was in school and certainly appreciate it. it made me look forward to lunchtime. Matt, another issue that the dairy industry has, has worked on for a long time is the milk that's available, flavored or unflavored, to students. And as you mentioned, it's 1% or it's non-fat. I understand there is a recent piece of legislation, whole milk for healthy kids, that might open up some more choices for students. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. And there's even a piece of legislation on flavored milk. So, you know, Representative Stefanik in upstate New York introduced uh, a bill a few months ago, uh, Protecting School Milk Choices Act, right? And that would ensure that flavored milk continues to be served in public schools. And the same is true, you know, uh, for whole milk. So what we have now is the Whole Milk for Healthy Kids Act. That was a bill that was introduced recently by Representative G.T. Thompson, a Pennsylvania Republican. And it was co-sponsored by Dr. Kim Schreier, a Democrat from Washington State, who's also a pediatrician. And, you know, we have some real positive momentum here, Mike, on, on school milk in the past few weeks. And I dare say that it looks like the tide really is beginning to shift a bit. We're seeing that with, with whole milk and with flavored milk. And with the introduction of this bill, the bill was passed out of the House Education and Workforce Committee yesterday with a 26 to 13 vote. And the best part about it, it has 106 bipartisan co-sponsors in the House of Representatives. Uh, and that is just unheard of with a whole milk bill. Uh, it demonstrates, I think, that lawmakers are really beginning to listen to parents and they're listening to those school meal professionals, the folks who serve our kids meals every day and the kids themselves. And I expect we will see a very similar bill in the Senate soon uh, around whole milk and that too is going to have strong bipartisan support. So some real momentum on whole milk in Congress.
That is really good news. Folks, if you're a parent out there, if you've got a young one in school and you want to make sure they've got more opportunities for whole milk availability at school, follow this bill, get active, call your legislator, and I'll let them know to support the whole milk for healthy kids as well as the Senate version when that comes out. Now, we've been talking here with Matt Herrick, Senior Vice President for Public Affairs and Communication at the International Dairy Food Association. And Matt, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you, Mike. Folks, thanks so much for listening to AOA. Tune in tomorrow. We'll talk this cattle market rally again with Dennis Smith of Archer Financial Services. We'll also talk about Indiana's new right to repair bill with their attorney general, Todd Rokita. Tune in tomorrow to AOA. This is Mike Pearson. Thanks for listening to Agriculture of America. Join me Monday through Friday for the latest farm and agriculture news from around the world. On the internet, there are tons of special networking websites, but one stands apart. This one saves lives. It's MatchingDonors.com. MatchingDonors.com links organ donors with people in need of kidney and other transplants. Did you know in the U.S., 19 people die each day waiting for an organ transplant? If you've ever considered becoming a living organ donor, or if you're someone in need of an organ transplant, please visit MatchingDonors.com. At YMCA Summer Camp, kids find their why. Friendship and fun, a world of adventure beneath a golden sun. Running, laughing, full of wonder. Being themselves is second nature. Summer camp is where they begin to unlock the confidence that lies within. When kids find new passions, they find their why. Summer camp season starts soon. Learn more at ymca.org for a better us. You are not your diagnosis. A medical chart is not your identity. And vision loss does not define you. Your drive shows who you are. And you are not alone. Because we are driven too. To be a beacon of strength. A champion of courage. An advocate for hope. You are not alone. Because we are stronger together. We drive the research for the cures we are finding. We're fighting macular degeneration. Retinitis pigmentosa. Usher syndrome and the entire spectrum of blinding retinal diseases. We fund. We fight. We, we win. win. We 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 are, are the, the foundation, foundation fighting, fighting blindness. blindness. Together, we are fighting blindness. Join the fight at fightingblindness.org.